You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Another ransomware victim pays up. Privilege escalation comes to ransomware. Vendor impersonation scams hit cities, and government impersonation scams hit citizens. Be wary of both. Former NSA contractor Hal Martin will be sentenced later this month, with suspected connections with the shadow broker still unresolved. An exploit supply chain is described. The silence gang is suspected in Bangladeshi bank heists. And a bad message can brick a phone. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, July 8, 2019. Forensic lab Eurofins is paying the extortionists who hit it with ransomware. The BBC says the amount is unknown, but large. The Times puts it at hundreds of thousands of pounds. In any case, the payment is regarded as very large, huge in some headlines. Eurofins is not, we should point out, a digital forensics shop. Their work is of the physical laboratory type, DNA typing and toxicology. So Dino Kibi ransomware is using a Windows privilege escalation bug, CVE 2018-8453, to gain admin access to its targets. As ZDNet notes, it's relatively unusual for ransomware to exploit a privilege escalation vulnerability. But here's something that's not at all unusual. The bug, which was patched in October 2018, was first exploited by a state and then was picked up by the criminal underworld. The vulnerability first came to light as a zero-day exploited by Fruity Armor, a state-directed espionage crew active mostly against Middle Eastern targets. The city of Griffin, Georgia, located in the greater Atlanta region, recently lost a cool $800,000 to a scammer posing as a vendor the city's water department was accustomed to doing business with. The loss came through a phishing email in which someone impersonating the vendor told the luckless city employee that they needed to change their banking info. Change it, the employee did, and the city subsequently flushed away a few hundred thousand dollars. The city manager is quoted by Atlanta's 11 Alive News to the effect that he's shocked by the whole thing. And, of course, government agencies are also impersonated by scammers working against individual citizens. It's worth remembering that contact from people claiming to represent a government agency should be treated with appropriate suspicion. That phone call from the Social Security Police, that pop-up from the CIA, that email from the FBI, are all too likely to be bogus. Especially the Social Security Police, since 
There really is no such thing, and a social security number doesn't get suspended. Anywho, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission reports that government imposter scams are running at an all-time high, with over 46,000 attempts reported to the FTC in May alone. The median amount lost by individuals hornswoggled by the imposters is $960. So don't be taken in. The government, the U.S. government anyway, and we think matters are much the same in the rest of the civilized world, isn't going to call you up to threaten arrest or ask for personal information. What will happen, should you run afoul of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is that they may show up with flashbangs and other methods of forced entry. That's how they collared Hal Martin, the former NSA contractor, convicted of unlawful retention of defense information. Mr. Martin will have his sentencing hearing on July 17th in a Baltimore federal court. The Washington Post observes that his widely suspected connection, if any, to the shadow brokers' leaks remains as obscure as ever. There was much speculation around the time of Mr. Martin's arrest that he had been in Twitter contact with the brokers, but the government has apparently not established this, either because the evidence isn't there, or because they secured more than enough evidence from his Glen Burnie, Maryland residence, or because there are other sensitivities at play. As for the brokers themselves, they have kept a low profile for some time after their leaks of purported NSA tools, and they and their implausibly broken English are as much on the wing as ever. There is growing attention given to the security of the software supply chain, particularly the increased use of open-source components. Derek E. Weeks is vice president at Sonotype, a provider of DevSecOps automation tools. Every single organization that is developing software is taking advantage of a software supply chain today. And that software supply chain takes on a couple of different forms. One, it's really how software is delivered into organizations that use it for development. And in different cases, you can use open source components that are freely available on the internet that developers use to assemble large portions of their code that they're developing into applications. And the other source is containers that are open source for downloading from places like Docker Hub people can use within development or operations practices. The supply chain volume on the demand side is huge. It's also huge on the supply side. So when we study and analyze open source component contributions from different development ecosystems, whether it's Java, JavaScript, Python, .NET, Ruby. About 13,000 new open source projects having releases every day. The amount of supply of these components that is available to developers is tremendous, and the consumption volumes are huge too. From a security point of view, what are the pluses and minuses of using open source software? That's a really good question. So the pluses are absolutely that open source components being fed through software supply chains make us a lot more efficient in development practices. Why spend an hour, a week, a month writing something from scratch when you could download it from the internet in a second? The incredible efficiency that it allows is, you know, why the consumption patterns are going up exponentially. Most of the open source projects out there develop and uh, help deliver high quality code to these development organizations. 
And many of them want to move very fast because they need to deliver new capabilities to their customers in order to serve them better and maintain their competitive position in the market. So if you're, you know, trying to be the next Amazon or the next Netflix or the next Uber, uh, you have to move a lot faster at delivering value to the market than your competitors. Now, at the same time, when we look at open source component downloads that we examined last year, we saw one in 10 of these Java components being downloaded, having known security vulnerabilities. And then also in late last year, the JavaScript repository led by NPM for the NPM packages used by JavaScript developers, they had analyzed 4 million component downloads of which they found 51% had known vulnerabilities in them. It's really a matter of borrower beware. Are there any consistencies that you see when it comes to companies who are doing a good job managing these supply chain issues? Anything that you find that they have in common? Yeah, there's a couple of things that they're doing in common. Uh, One is they're controlling the use of open source within their organization. So there's something that is referred to as an open source governance policy. We've spent the last couple of years surveying organizations where about 57% of organizations say that they have uh, a policy in place. And really the developers in those organizations are saying that. So the developers are aware of the policy that basically guides them on, hey, you know, it's your responsibility that when you're using these components to use the good ones and not the bad ones that provide some level of risk, whether that's legal risk or security risk to our organization. There are also organizations uh, as a kind of second best practice that are keeping track of the components that their developers are using within the applications that they're building. That list of open source components is called a software bill of materials. And usually, you know, if you're a mature DevOps practice, about 56% of those organizations, I believe, are keeping a bill of materials in organizations that aren't practicing DevOps or DevSecOps, it's about 25% keep a complete software bill of materials. The reality is when a security vulnerability comes up, whether that's Struts or Bouncy Castle or OpenSSL's Heartbleed kind of you know open source vulnerabilities, the first question any organization is asking is, did we ever use that component and that vulnerable version of that component? And if we did, where? The software bill of materials allows them to get that answer. That's Derek Weeks from Sonotype. Anomaly has described a Microsoft Office exploit supply chain being shared among at least five Chinese groups. Konimes, Keyboy, Emissary Panda, Ranker, and Temp.Trident. Specifically, they're all working the Royal Road Rich Text Format Weaponizer, and using it to exploit CVE 2017-11882 and CVE 2018-0802. Three banks in Bangladesh sustained substantial thefts by hackers in May. It now appears that the gang behind the raid was the crew known as Silence. Group IB, which has been tracking Silence since late last year, believes the gang has two core members, Russian-speaking operators who appear to be white hats gone rogue. Their hacking involves jackpotting by money mules, some of whom have been caught in the act. Britain's Information Commissioner's Office has announced its intent to slap a record fine on British Airways. Over £183 million for a data breach 
that put the airline in violation of GDPR. It's a record fine, which the BBC reports British Airways intends to fight vigorously. Google's Project Zero has confirmed that under certain circumstances, a malformed message can brick an iPhone. An affected device can be recovered, Forbes reports, but at the expense of losing data. We close with two sad notes. Jeffrey Sessions, CEO of security and networking firm Red River, and his wife, Elizabeth Howell, died in a watercraft accident last week. Our condolences go to their family, friends, and colleagues. And on Friday, Mike Asante succumbed to the cancer he'd resisted for many years. He was a leader in, indeed a fixture in, the industrial control system security sector. Again, we offer our condolences to his family, friends, and colleagues. For all who passed away last week, we wish that those close to them find courage and consolation, and we trust that those who knew them will remember the departed for lives well led. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. Um, A story came by, uh, this was on uh, Medium from a group called One Zero, and it's about a company that uh, bar owners use to scan people's IDs. And uh, there's a lot of information being gathered here in ways that perhaps people aren't really aware of or prepared for. What, what, uh, what's going on here? So I've learned to be uh, more careful about what I do at bars, the rare occasions that I go to bars after reading this article. <laughs> um, this is a company called Patron Scan. And I'm sure at any bar you've been to, you see the kiosks they have at the entrance uh, with the big bouncers. They'll take your ID and they'll scan it. And what you probably thought they were doing is just making sure that your ID was legit, that you were of age, 
that the ID comes from a reputable state or mm-hmm. uh, international location. What this article talks about is how those kiosks are turning into repositories of a permanent record of bar attendees. Meaning, if one bar puts some sort of red flag and associates that with your driver's license, the one that you scan when you go in, that will be visible to users of the software at every other bar that you go to. So if you have an incident Hmm. at a bar and they put something on your permanent file that says, you know, Dave was very difficult, he was throwing punches, got in a Mm -hmm. bar fight. When that's scanned at the next bar, that information is going to show up. So not only is it concerning from a civil liberties perspective as it applies to other bars, you know, frankly... We may not care that much about what other bars think of us as long as they let us in. (laughs) Uh, Patron Scan uh, is one of the relative few technological companies that seems enthusiastic about cooperating with law enforcement. Hmm. If you're wanted for some sort of criminal action and evidence is needed as to whether you are in a particular location, Patron Scan will voluntarily hand that information over based on when you've scanned your ID. Uh, And, you know, that can be relatively concerning for people. Most technological companies go out of their way to say that they will not give information to law enforcement unless there's either a valid subpoena or uh, some sort of judicial warrant. And what PatronScan has said is that, well, they're not selling your information to third parties. uh, At least that's what they claim. They are willing to give your information to law enforcement. Uh, So the upshot of this is when you go to a bar just by entering that bar and having your ID scanned, you're potentially putting yourself at some risk for A, being blacklisted from other institutions because you get something marked on your permanent record, so to speak, and B, exposing yourself to to law enforcement. And I think, um, you know, that can be concerning for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I mean, I think back to, you know, my own days, my younger days, when I used to uh, to visit bars, I'm thinking of my college days, and it's hard for me to imagine the equivalent of this, where I would hand someone uh, my ID and they would say, hold on, I need to make a copy of this, and then I'm going to stick it in a filing cabinet. I, I don't think people would be okay with that. No, certainly not. And to extend that metaphor a little bit, imagine they'd made copies and gave it to every single bar in a geographic area, so that before you could enter any bar, they would check the file and see, you know, has this person assaulted anybody, gotten into a bar fight, and if not, we can't let them in. You know, from a legal perspective, the the patron doesn't actually have a, much of a legal leg to stand on. Um, this is your classic third-party doctrine case. You have a choice whether to go to a bar or not. You are voluntarily giving your ID card to the bouncer to get in. And once you do that, it's fair game for the company that's doing the scanning to send that information to law enforcement. Um, but simply from a you know personal perspective, I think it it is quite intrusive. And and to this point, really, the only way around this is to vote with your feet, right? So uh, the adoption of patron scan is voluntary on the part of the bar. Um, so you know perhaps the free market will take care of this, and there are going to be bars that say we're not going to use this technology. Now, bars have incentive to use it. They're audited on whether they sell alcohol to minors. And one of the ways they can make sure they don't sell alcohol to minors is to verify their driver's licenses. And this is one of the key technologies that they're going to use to do that. So bars certainly have their own incentive to use technology like this. Um, But you're right. I mean, I think there is going to be a market out there, sort of a, a dark web for bar goers of places where 
um, their names won't be put on a permanent record, uh, especially if this becomes something that's more widely known, widely talked about and, and uh, written about online. All right. Well, that's an interesting one. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.